You know, uh, I, I'm just as an aside before we get started, I, I, as I often say, uh, Easter and Christmas are the two most dangerous times in the church. Uh, and, and the reason I say that is is because expositionally, as a pastor, you, you, sometimes you feel the pressure to come up because, I mean, you do Christmas Easter every year. And how many times can you preach on the Easter story? And I suppose on one level, you know, you never, we should never get tired of hearing it. But, but there is, a, there, there is a, a subtle pressure to come up with something new and creative. And, and the danger in that is, is you come up with something new and creative that maybe the word isn't really saying. And so as I was really thinking about um, what, what I wanted us to, to consider this morning, I thought of uh, the fact that uh, how, how, can we be, how can we become more offensive to our culture? And I tell you you're excited about that. Um, how we can become more offensive. And the reason I say that is so often... Um, well, for, for many, many years, we, we, I was trained in apologetics, and apologetics was the, 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 really the, the defense of the faith. And uh, so, you know, we studied how to answer all the objections to Christianity, you know, objections to, 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 our, well, to, to every aspect of our faith. And, and over the years, I've grown to uh, appreciate that, that really that's probably not the approach to take that we have become far too defensive in our faith, and we be- need to become more offensive. And what I mean by that is, is, is the world has placed us, really, in an, uh, with an un- unfair playing field, where they can just pepper us with questions and objections. And now we have to come up with answers for the reason of the hope. And the, and the, and the Bible does say that, to give a reason for the hope that we have. But what I want us to do this morning is I want us, hopefully, to learn. And, oh, and by the way, and, and, and this is quintessential during this time of year, right, for the resurrection. How many of us have heard all the apologetics for the, to prove the resurrection? Um, we have all of these evidences to prove the resurrection. Um, and, and yet, um, we're always on the defensive. And what I'm, gonna, what I'm going to assert this morning is that we need to be more offensive. Not in the normal sense of that word, but in terms of offense. Now, we need to start with a brief tutorial on epistemology. What's epistemology? Anybody know? Pistuo means to believe. Ology is the study. of How we know things. How do you know things? How do you know what you know? Think about that for a minute. Think about the things that you know. Okay, math. How do you know math? How do we know the sun, was this, I was going to say the sun revolves around the earth. Just call me Copernicus. No, no really, how do you, if, if you ever stop to think about it, how do you know what you know? This is what we call epistemology. Now, there's many different ways that we know things. And, and, and one way that, that people often approach how we know things is, is empiricism. Empiricism is our senses. To see, hear, feel, touch. This is where we get kind of science. Some people believe, I'm not going to believe anything that can't be proven scientifically, that I can't see, feel, hear, or touch. What's, pro- what's one problem with that worldview? You can't prove that statement by hearing, feeling, hearing, or touching. But empiricism is one worldview. 
I only believe, I only know that which I can, I can verify with my senses. The other is rationalism. Rationalism is that this is the, the whole notion that um, reason alone is my source for knowledge. What's, what's one problem with that worldview? Well, how do you know if your reason is sound? Rationalism. The third really major worldview when it comes to how we know things is the Christian worldview, which is revelation. Now, to be sure, we, we, we see empirical evidence for, for what God has revealed to us. And for sure, it is rational and it is reasonable. But it's not empiricism. It's not rationalism. It's revelation. And what is our revelation? The Word of God. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, one last thing when it comes to how we know things. And this is very important. Everybody has what I call a basic belief. What's, what do I mean by basic belief? Another fancy word for this is a, is a presupposition. We have certain presuppositions. And that is, in order to know something, you have to start somewhere. Let me give an example. If I was to say, well, I believe in A, whatever A is. And you say, well, why do you believe in A? Well, because of B. Well, why do you believe in B? Well, because of C. Thank you. Where's Michael? There, there you are. Oh, there you did. Why do you believe in C? Because of D, E, and so forth. We call this an infantry. At some point, every, rational knowledge and thought has to start with a basic belief, a belief that you believe to be true that is independent from any other evidence. You cannot have any kind of rational thought or belief without starting somewhere. And that whatever that, wherever that starting point is, that is your basic belief. That is your primary presupposition. And we call that your primary authority. And what I want us to do is I want us to examine, number one, what is our authority? And number two, that we demand from the world to, to identify what their authority is, what their basic belief is. So we need to realize and we need to challenge when it, when it comes to the resurrection, we need to challenge their authority. We need to be more offensive, more on the offensive. So what's our authority? Our authority is the scriptures, the Bible, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God. Have you not been to vacation Bible school? The Bible is what we call inerrant and inspired. It, it, it is God-breathed. It is, it's God's word uh, to man, and it is without error. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says what? The word of God is breathed out, is inspired by God. It claims to be the very words of God. In fact, turn with me, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter one. Verse 
Verses 20 and 21, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Don't ever be ashamed of the Bible. I fear that in in, in our day and age... uh, uh, we, we are obsessed with, with trying to show our world that, that we are intellectually respectable and that we're not a bunch of uh, hillbillies that just uh, fell off the turnip truck. And so we don't ever want to... When was the last time you, anybody used the Bible as a source of authority for what they believe? No, we have to quote... We have to rely on other authorities, like a professor or a teacher. And, you know, and some people know what they know because of a professor or a teacher, something they, they were taught. A professor in college, especially, where kids are, or young people are being destroyed. They, they, they hold their professor or their teacher who has a, a Ph.D. behind his name as, as ultimate authority. Well, Dr. So-and-so taught us this, and so therefore it's true. Maybe it's a book they read. Or maybe, in fact, and I put this in air quotes, maybe they depend on science. Others, philosophy. Others, it's their experience. This subjective experience is their source of authority. No, we need to assert uh, our source of authority. Which, and, and, and to do so, without embarrassment, without shame, to simply proclaim the Bible says. And, and, and when we live in, in a, a world, <laughs> man, it, it, it is on steroids of... Uh, of relevancy or, or, or cultural relativism and, and moral relativism, we need to boldly proclaim, thus saith the Lord. This is what the Bible says. We're, we're, we're not opposed to LGBTQ+. By the way, you know there's two pluses now? You know why they do that? In case, they haven't, in case they've left anybody out. Seriously. Why are we opposed to that? Because we're homophobic? Because we're mean-spirited? No. Because our authority says that that is wrong. That is immoral. Because the Bible says. We don't have to provide sociological reasons. We don't have to provide physical reasons. Uh, Those are maybe secondary, but primarily our authority is because the Bible says. Why don't we say that? We must not concede our authority when it comes to proving the resurrection, when it comes to um, uh, arguing over abortion or, or sodomy or all the different forms of issues that we face in our culture. The Bible speaks to these things. So what about the Bible? How do we know this is the word of God? How would you answer that? How do you know this is the Word of God? Well, the, the, the final, the, really the, the one true answer is it, it is what we call self-authenticating. It is self-attesting. It is a basic belief. It claims to be the inspired and errant Word of God. It is its own self-witness. And someone say, well, that's circular reasoning. Well, remember, we get back to the basic belief. How does it take a liberal professor in a college in, a social, in, in social studies? How does he know what he knows? Anyone know? Because that what what's 
what was what he was taught, right? When he went to Yale, that's what his professors taught him. And he read their textbooks, his professors' textbooks. And how did they, but how did they know what they claimed to be true? Because someone taught them. You see, it's an equal playing field, is it not? For them to say to us, well, you're just assuming offhand, a priori, that the Bible is true. Yeah, and you assume offhand that Professor Ramalama Ding Dong is true. So it goes both ways. So I'm more than willing to, to pit my authority against any other source of authority. It is, self, it is self-authenticating. It is self-attesting. It claims to be the inerrant, inspired word of God and absolute truth. Now, what are, what, is, what are some response that people might give to that? Say, well, how do you know that? Epistemology, right? How do you know that? How do you know that to be true? Well, it claims it. What would we expect to find in a document that claims to be the very words of God? Well, we would, we would expect it to be what? We'd expect it to be internally consistent. There are no factual errors. There are no logical inconsistencies. In, in fact, um, the, for many, many years, people have been trying to prove the Bible wrong by the so-called uh, contradictions. What's a contradiction, by the way? If, the Bible, if someone says to you the Bible's full of contradictions, what might you ask them? What do you mean by contradiction? Because most people have no clue what a contradiction is. What is a contradiction? A contradiction is when you claim that A is both A and non-A at the same time in the same respect. Now, let me, let me, let me flesh that out for you. Can I say, can this be a pulpit and not be a pulpit? You, you, this audience can this both be a pulpit and not be a pulpit? And Cindy had the right answer. Yes. Why? At one moment, it's a pulpit, but if I brought in a bulldozer and flattened it, it's no longer a pulpit. So that's why a contradiction, a pulpit has, cannot be both a pulpit and a pulpit at the same time. Can this be both a pulpit and not pulpit at the same time? No. And in the same respect, assuming we're, we're dealing with the same thing. A contradiction is not when two reports appear to give differing information. That's not necessarily a contradiction. The Bible is internally consistent. It, when we look at its textual pedigree, and what I mean by that is you look at the manuscript evidence of the Bible. If, if, you, if you write off the Bible... You write off every other document of history because it's not even close. At last count, there's over 8,000 extant Greek witnesses to the New Testament. And finally, it's supernatural nature. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. That's from John chapter 10. And that whole chapter is not talking about post-conversion experience. He's not talking about a post-conversion experience. Post-conversion leading, when he says, my sheep hear my voice, he's saying that when we hear the voice of God, when we, we read and we hear the voice of God through scriptures, it affirms itself to us that, it's the, it's, it, that it is the very words of God. Hebrews 4.12 talks about the, the Bible is alive, living, and active. It has an animating effect on people. It has this supernatural effect. So, in fact, our authority is the Bible, the very word of God. It is internally consistent. Its textual pedigree is, has no rival. And, in fact, 
it has and has historically and continues to have a supernatural effect on people's lives. So what's our assessment? How, how do we approach this when it comes to the resurrection? By the way, how do we know the resurrection occurred? What? Witnesses, but where, where, where do we hear the witnesses? We've spent years trying to prove the resurrection, and not once have I seen many people open their Bible and say, Here, here's why I know the resurrection occurred. Turn to Matthew chapter 26. And they say, well, I don't believe the Bible. You know what? That's where I want them. Because now we're talking about the right thing. Now we're talking about sources of authority. I'm not trying to, you know, go the Lord liar lunatic and the swoon theory. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going there. I'm going right here. How do we know? What does the Bible say? I mean, it, it, it sounds obvious, but many Christians don't say the same thing about non-Christians that the Bible says. We really don't believe our Bibles. What does the Bible say is the state of a non-Christian? Ephesians 2.1 says we were dead. We were spiritually dead in our sins. Not spiritually infirmed, not spiritually sick, not kind of alive, not, not Prince's Bride, not mostly dead, but all the way dead. We are spiritually dead. And that is simply talking about an a, a inability. A dead person is completely unable to respond to anything. If I had a dead body up here, you poke it with needles, it cannot respond. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 talks about the fact that this world has been blinded by our enemy. Not physical blindness, but spiritually blind. They're spiritually dead. The Bible says that they are spiritually blind. And in fact, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural man is not able to understand the things of the of the Spirit of God. There is a spiritual inability, not an unwillingness, an inability. And so we come to these people and we try to prove to them that the Bible is true. We try to prove to them that the resurrection really happened. We, we try to prove to them that God exists. And we're doing that with those who the Bible says are spiritually dead, who, whose spiritual eyes are blinded and completely unable to understand. But what do I mean by we need to believe our Bible? Turn, if you would, to Romans 8. This I would like you to look at. Romans chapter 8. This is what I mean when I say believe our Bibles. Romans chapter 1. What? Romans 1. Did I say 8? Uh, maybe because I was looking at 18. Romans 1.18. Did I say? Oh, sorry, Dan. 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What does our Bible say about a non-Christian who is spiritually blind, spiritually dead, spiritually unable to respond. On one level, though, the Bible says what about them? God, they know God, our God, the God of the Bible. They know he exists. When someone says, I don't believe in God, what, what, what do we call that? A lie. 
Because the Bible says they do believe. Someone once asked me, he said, how was it that you came about to believe that, that God existed? And I said, the same way you did. The same way you do. The same way you know he exists. But what do we do? We respond to that statement the same way. How would you respond if someone said, I don't believe in words? Would we take out a dictionary? Say, well, no, I mean, I'll, I'll, pro you, I'll show you. Here's where we're. No, we. The Bible says they believe in God. They know the true God. They, they, they know he exists. But what are they doing? They are suppressing. This is in the present tense. They continually suppress the truth. And this word, have you ever had like a, a ball in a pool? You try to keep it under the water. And it you know, keeps wanting to come up. And you have to constantly stay on top of that ball to keep it under the water. That, that's the sense of this word. They are continually suppressing the truth. But they know the truth. They know God exists. And how do I know that? Epistemology. How do I know that they know that God exists? The scripture tells me so. They already believe, but they suppress it. You see, here's what I'm trying to say. It's not that they need additional information in order to believe. We don't don't appeal to... It's not like they're just missing a few pieces of the puzzle. And we provide that evidence and... The pieces get put in place. Oh, no. What we're dealing with is we're dealing not with the intellect. We're dealing with the conscience. We're dealing with the will. Which leads to number three, our approach. And this stands to reason. Use the Bible. (laughs) The Bible's our authority. Use it. When we, when we concede our authority for the sake of intellectual respectability or to try to appeal to them on any other level, we in essence have, have entered into a gunfight and we lay our weapon down. I mean, the scriptures tell us that, that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So the first thing we need to do is use the Bible, assert the Bible. Assert biblical truth. Um, we need to lead with the Bible. Now, a couple of things and we'll wrap up. Preach the word. 2 Timothy 4.2 says what? Preach the word. That word includes the gospel. Preach it. Now, this is not just for people who stand behind pulpits. This is for you. What are you supposed to share with people in your lives, non-Christians in your lives? The word, the gospel. And, and, and let me say something real quick about personal testimonies. Mormons have personal testimonies. Some Muslims, although fewer and fewer, have personal testimonies. Baha'is have personal testimonies. I mean, they wouldn't be following the truth or what they suppose the truth unless they, it had some kind of subjective effect on them. Now, there's a time and a role for testimonies. But ultimately, we're not to, we're not to preach our testimony. We preach the Word. We, we preach the Bible. We share what the Bible says. It's, our, it, it, it's the only thing we're authorized to share. The only thing I'm authorized to ever share 
authoritatively anyway, is the Word of God. Number two, focus on Christ. We focus on the resurrected Christ. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Also, verse 18, for the word of the cross, the gospel, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. As an aside, oftentimes when the word of the cross is foolishness, we, we try to resort to trying to prove that it's not foolish. But Paul doesn't say that. He said, if it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. You see, we keep preaching foolishness. We keep sharing foolishness. And really, our, our translation should have that in air quote. Foolishness in the eyes of man. We don't try to prove that it's not foolish. We preach foolishness in order to what? To save those who believe. Jews demand signs. I want evidence. Greeks seek for wisdom. What does it say? Verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. We do not succumb to the playing field that they demand. We don't fall into that trap. Know this. What we win them with is what we win them to. If we prove the Bible, we try to prove the Bible by anything other than the Bible itself, what automatically has become our ultimate authority? Whatever we use to prove it. See, we, are, we have appealed to a higher authority to prove this authority. Is there a role, of ev- role for evidence? There is. But not to prove this. Because then suddenly whatever evidence we use to prove this is now a higher authority than this. Focus on Christ. We preach Christ crucified. We preach who he was, that he was God incarnate. We preach his work, his death, his resurrection. We, we talk about that he was raised from the dead. And that's what Paul did in Acts 17. And when he started talking about the resurrection is when they wrote him off. And what did he say? Whoa, 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 let me, let me prove to you the resurrection. Let's say, for instance, that the stone was three tons. How could the guy? No, he didn't do any of that. They rejected it. He moved on. Finally, call for a decision. Romans 10, 13. Call. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He, Paul, Peter and Paul uh, said to, to the Philippian jailer, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Believe. Call on the name of the Lord. We call for a decision. We appeal to their will. We appeal to their conscience. Remember, it's not a lack of information that that there's a problem. The problem is (coughs) spiritual death, inability, and a suppression of the truth. So what I want to encourage you to do, many of us now, I'm not this morning, so please don't freak out on me. We have concealed carry permits. Many of us in this room have concealed carry permits. 
And most, in my class I took, they said, you need to carry all the time because the one time you don't carry is the time you don't. The only reason I don't on Sunday mornings, it kind of freaks people out, and I know that there's plenty here. What I'm advocating is that we start a concealed carry with our Bibles. Maybe even open carry. There's all kinds of Bibles you can buy. I call them derringers. You know, the little New Testament Psalms or something like this. You don't have to carry. Uh, where's Corey? Okay, Corey, stand up. I'm, I'm not necessarily advocating you carry this around with you everywhere. But there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I, uh, my family will tell you there's rarely, or you, most of you probably know this, <coughs> I'm rarely any place without my Bible. I open carry. Because... It's my, it's my sword. It, it, it's, my, it's my spiritual weapon. I, I never, you never know when I'm going to need it. You know, how many Christians are, are, right, are, are more intent on carrying their Glock than they are their Bible? Now, carry your Glock. Not opposed to that. Um, or a Springfield 45, whichever you... Guys... How do we know the resurrection is true? Because the Bible tells us it's true. How do we know it really happened? Because the Bible tells us it really happened. We don't need any other evidence. Now, there is other evidence. We don't need any other evidence. We, know, we ought not preach any other evidence. Because the other evidence is not our ultimate authority. Our ultimate authority is the Bible. And so, Jim, that's very narrow-minded and, and, yeah, it is. But getting back to belief, so is theirs. Their claims to truth is narrow-minded, too, because they are relying on some ultimate authority. And I'll pit my ultimate authority against Professor Whatchamacallit any day of the week because this is the very words of God and, in fact, they are no factual errors, no logical inconsistencies. It's true in all that affirms. And it has a supernatural impact on people's lives. I've ordered April's. It's not in yet for Voice of the Martyrs. And it was providential. This is all about God's word on the world's most dangerous mission fields. In closing, I'd like to read you this brief story about Iran. The Islamic Republic of Iran restricted all access to God's word. But despite great risk, Iranian believers are sharing the gospel on the street with unprecedented boldness. Two years after placing her faith in Jesus Christ, Farina still hadn't told a soul. Like most Christians in Iran, she feared the backlash she would face if her family learned that she had left Islam. Since doing so is illegal in the Muslim nation, new Christians are often imprisoned after going public with their faith, and many more are beaten for bringing shame to their Muslim family. Aware of these possibilities, Farina decided to read her Bible only in secret. Then one day she saw something that shocked her. Quote, when I woke up and headed to the living room, my father was sitting on the floor reading a Bible thoughtfully. I couldn't believe my eyes. Farina returned to her room in a panic, thinking her father had discovered her Bible. After realizing the Bible he was reading was a different color, she asked him what he was doing. Quote, I am reading an amazing book. 
Belial replied. I found it in the mailbox today. It was wrapped in wrapping paper. Iranian Christians had gone house to house placing Bibles in mailboxes throughout the neighborhood. Each one included a note saying the book was a, the book was a gift for Nowruz, the Persian New Year. To Farina, the gift was a miracle. Using contact information included with the gift, which in and of itself is an amazingly courageous thing for them to do, for the believers in Iran to do. She learned how she and her father could join a house church. Quote, God called my father into his family. My father has been reading the book every day and talks about it joyfully. Stories like Farina's and Belial's are common. God's kingdom is growing faster in Iran than anywhere else in the world. This is what I'm telling us. Take the blinders off of the United States and what's going on in the United States and even what's going on in the world because we're, they're only, we're only hearing one side of the story of what's going on in our world. The whole world is not going to hell. There's a lot of people who are going to heaven. God, I love my Baptist brother up here. When the coronavirus pandemic began, Arif and his wife, Liana, were happy to follow Iran's lockdown because their age put them at risk. But one day, while getting some fresh air in a local park, they were approached by a man who talked to them briefly about God and gave them a Bible. Arif gave it a quick look, and when he got home, placed it on a bookshelf. Months later, Arif had a dream about a light. This is a very common testimony of what's going on in the Muslim world. He had a dream about a light shining brightly from the bookshelf and a voice saying, I will reveal the true way to you. You will find me there. That didn't save him. We're not saying that saved him. Here's, here's, here's the beautiful part. The quote, the next morning I thought about my dream, he said, and then I went to the bookshelf and grabbed the Bible after eight months. I opened it with more passion, and curiously, I remembered also the guy who gave me this book. After reading some passages in the Bible, Eric returned to the first page and found contact information for the man who had given it to him. Quote, I grabbed my phone and called the number to ask about my dream and questions that came to my mind about God. Today, Eric is connected to a ministry that answers his questions and prays with him, leading him closer to Jesus Christ. Bible changes lives. Because God said it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. I know many of you contributed for new Bibles for Tanzania. And Tom just, uh, just sent me uh, a picture of uh, how, many, how many new believers in, in uh, two on Good Friday in Rahatway. That village that, that we, if you were here, that, that the new church plant in that village of Rahatway with Pastor Michael. Many of you have contributed for Bibles for that church. It's going to change lives. Because the Bible has a supernatural nature. It's not just a doctrinal book. It's not just a theological book. It tells us about God. It tells us about Jesus Christ. It tells us about the resurrection. It tells us about new life. And it has a supernatural animating uh, effect on people's lives. So what do we want? We believe that God raised Jesus from the dead because he told us he did. He recorded it in the Bible through eyewitnesses. 
and through the integrity of Scripture. I want to encourage us. Never go anywhere without your Bible. You never know when you're going to need it. Use it. Don't ever be ashamed. Don't ever be embarrassed when talking to a non-Christian about saying, well, the Bible says this. Well, I don't believe the Bible. I know you don't believe the Bible. I know that already. But I don't have any other authority. That's my only authority. And I'm going to proclaim to you what the Bible says. <laughs> Do you see, you see what, where, where I'm going with this? The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. We stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word. It is inerrant. It is inspired. It is truth. And I'll pit this authority over anything or anyone. Lord, help us to be more offensive and a little less defensive in proclaiming the truth through what the Bible says. We thank you for your word. We thank you again for Jesus Christ risen from the dead. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand?